Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Welcome to Fried, the ultimate guide to burnout podcast. If you've ever been burnt out because of your job, your relationship, or just your life, this is the place for you. We will talk all things burnout by sharing deep stories of personal transformation each week with a new guest who vows to share their stories without leaving out the scary bits. This is raw, honest, and brought to you by acupuncturist and burnout coach Kate Donovan, whose own experiences make her determined to change the current burnout culture. Hello, my lovely listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. Today, my guest is calling in all the way from South Africa, and I'm so excited to talk to her, and you will find out why soon. Her name is Karina Roska, and she is a self-professed international mutt. Born in Romania, raised in Canada, now living in South Africa. She worked on international feature films for over 12 years to then become the host ambassador and experiences curator for Airbnb in Cape Town. She's currently working for herself by running two companies, Stay at Mine, a property hosting and consulting company, and Coza Collected, a manufacture and distribution of South African sleep slash rest products, which are totally beautiful. And you should follow them on Instagram because their feed makes you want to take a nap. It's so lovely and calm. Karina, welcome to the show. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. So I've been starting every episode by asking our guests to share what happened, what's the burnout story, so that we can dig into you know, sort of all the nonsense behind it and, and hear how you made your way through. Um, well, where, where does the story start? I mean, um, I think uh, there's a lot of precursors that kind of crack the foundation in order to, to attain or to reach full burnout status. Um, and I think a big moment in my, my life, understandably, would be when my family emigrated from communist Romania while it was still communist in the early 80s when I was just five. So there's the whole culture clash and the whole upheaval of going from, you know, this very, very sheltered space and time to, you know, what we used to think of as the promised land. And a lot of people do think as the promised land, which is Canada. Um, and being in Montreal, there were language um, barriers that obviously we had to go through being French and English. And then, of course, um, I was raised by disabled parents, so I had to become a child adult very, very quickly. My parents are both deaf. So the dichotomy of achieving something so massive while also taking on massive responsibility because the, the, the needs and the requirements were there kind of set this programming in place in my mind where I always needed to do more, and I never really understood my own gauges, if you will. So th th there's this way that I operate in the world where it's just, I never know if it's enough. And so when I got the opportunity to work in the film industry um, when I was 25, just at the turn of the century, which I love to say, because I think that's kind of funny, <laughs> um, in 2002, right? Um, I, I got in and um, the film industry is full on, you know? Um, to give you a size of the scope, nothing that I worked on by no credit of my own. I just happened to be with the really fantastic special effects team. And uh, all the movies were 100 million plus, where the crew members were in excess of a thousand people. And these were nine month projects traveling internationally. And it was work hard, play harder. And of course, you know, it's all fun and it's exciting. And then these different coping mechanisms start to play in. And there's the, again, culture shock of having to live and work in different countries, different continents, different environments, different cultures, and, and kind of being addicted to that because it's what, how I identified and knew myself into the world. And then what happens is eventually all movies get finished, completed, and you go home and everything goes quiet. 
and it's, it's a very odd feeling. So you run back to the familiar, which is back to a film set. And it's not dissimilar to um, binging and purging. You know, there's these massive dumps of energy and these, this massive access to energy, the feast or famine of productivity. And do that enough times that one side stopped for a few months because there were a couple of um, writers' strikes in uh, 2007, I believe, which is funny enough when the um, reality TV industry started to come to light. We spent a lot of time at home waiting for all to be sorted out. And I just, this, this cloud and this catatonic zombie-like state where you just can't get up again and you just don't know your place in the world and everything about your body is just wiped out um where there's months of my life that i don't i'm not even really sure i have two or three memories left over from because i just feel like i was ghosting in my own space waiting to not feel as exhausted so i managed to leave the film industry eventually and became uh, the host ambassador for airbnb but little did I know that immigrating myself to South Africa on my own as a single female would have its own re-traumatizing effect from my childhood. And, and I think the reason why I'm talking about the immigration and the trauma and all of these things is because of the amygdala firing. It's because of this alarm bell that won't turn itself off. And when the alarm bell's always ringing, that's what the, adrenal, the adrenals do. They just keep pumping. And after a while, there's just nothing left. And you're just tapped out. This is obviously listening to you. Uh, some of the people that have been on the podcast are still in the midst of their burnout story and they're crawling through as they speak to me. And it's obvious to me that you're speaking to me as someone who is out the other side, which doesn't mean, and and this has been repeated over and over on the podcast, that doesn't mean that you don't have to pay attention to it. In fact, almost everyone that's come to the other side has said that it's something that they have to stay on top of because they're so acutely aware of when it's happening, how it can happen, that they use it as as a guide in their current lives in order to keep themselves on track and, and avoid burnout. But the reason that I feel like I'm hearing you say that you're someone that's come to the other side because is because I haven't heard anyone say that they've been able to come through it without dealing with that programming that you were speaking of in the beginning, the programming that you had in place from your childhood of, is it enough? I always need to do more. The coping mechanisms that you created as a child that at some point in your life stopped functioning the same way. They didn't work the same way as, as they had before. The, the, the addiction to productivity, sort of all of these elements, but especially the elements that you gained in childhood, the way that you talk about them kind of makes me feel like, okay, she's on the flip side. Sort of, sort of. But again, it's, it's, um, I'm still fighting the same monster because I know my body better. Yeah. And my productivity is affecting my finances and my cash flow because the world's not slowing down on my account. You know, so I'm kind of in this thing where it's like, okay, I know my body, I know my productivity, I know what fills my tank. And um, I think it's Ian Lavanzant that says so beautifully, serve from your saucer. So your cup has to overflow so much that you're literally serving from your saucer, which I always try and keep in mind. And I, and I know what that is. And and it doesn't necessarily monetize, right? Yeah. So, and, and of course I have people saying to me, just get back into film. You're so broke right now. And I am. I am literally couch surfing on my friend's couch. And it's been 14 months. Yeah. Because I just cannot. Okay, the, you know, there's economic issues in South Africa and so on and so forth. But the propulsion, the forward propulsion that I need in 2019 at the speed that things are going i just don't run at that speed right and and it's such a conscious decision and it is, perhaps it's self-sabotaging i don't even know but i cannot make myself do it i have right. to go at the pace that i go to and i just can't compromise and i just can't make myself and that includes working on projects that aren't mine my integrity is so strong my brain will will unfortunately my brain and my mouth will commit to things 
because I want to and I'm programmed to and I know I should because it'll monetize. But my integrity and, and something in me is so strong that I cannot make myself do it. So it has to fill my tank. I have to work on my projects. I have to execute my own vision because even if I consult or if I, if I do like online work, remote online work for a company that has nothing to do with mine or my vision, it, it's such a depleting energetic diversion, distraction that I end up disappointing them and myself because it's just, it's not enough. And it so, becomes not worth it. It becomes not worth it. And then it's self-betrayal. And then it's like, why did I waste my time? And why did I waste their time? And now, my, you know, like Rumi says, you know, be notorious, destroy your reputation. Well, bless you, Rumi, because, you know, I'm testing that theory out. And, you know, so perhaps I am on the other side, but it's expensive. It's costly. It's not an easy decision. No, no, it's not an easy decision. And it's something that you talked about in a blog post that I found that I loved um, that I will link to in the show notes. And you said in that blog post, growth is not for sissies. It comes with sadness, grief, and mourning. 80% of the people and things from my former life cannot continue on this journey with me. Yeah, and that's, that's partly from, forget her name now quickly, but she said that, you know, you, you, when, you, when you grow, you cannot grow and be useful if you take everybody with you. You right. just have to go on your own and then you have to develop your, t your tools and your skills. And then if you come back for them, you come back for them. It's unlearning. You know, I, I'm, I spent a lot of time uh, with Byron Katie in Ohio, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and, and I love her work. I really, she's, it's really life-changing work. But again, that's where I learned that it's not for sissies because to unbelieve something, to let go of something that used to hold up the ceiling of your life, and something that continues to hold up the constructs of our culture, our tribe, our society. And to undo that is such a mourning process on the mind. It's freeing, sure, maybe eventually, or maybe it's freeing for a while and then you start to panic, like, oh my God, is that gone? You know, there, there's so many layers that come in with letting go and moving on and building your own contra indicated perspectives on things and being an outlier. It sounds better than it is because we've glamorized it and polished it, but it's yeah. work. Yeah. It's work. You know, my knees are scuffed. I've got dirt in my teeth, under my fingernails. And I'm just like, all I can do is keep slogging away at my own understanding of myself and the world be damned. Yeah. Like, there's no yeah. other choice. Like, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I do hold the belief that when you, if you're able to stick to it long enough, and it sounds like you don't really have a choice, but when you're able to stick to it long enough, eventually it does work out. However, that doesn't mean that the process is beautiful. And I think that speaks to what you were just saying. It's, it's not that polished version of the of the quote-unquote end which there I don't believe in an end but of the quote-unquote end of the process the polished version is just that the polished version and one of the things that I've been really appreciating about the conversations that I've been having on this podcast is that we're not polishing it we're not giving you a pile of crap and telling you that it's just covered in gold so it's okay thank you for that by the way we're just talking we're just talking about it we're just really actually going there and so it's interesting to me that with all the work that you've done and with this sort of very specific ability of of yours to say like i know that i had that programming in place i know that i needed to shift it and i am trying to shift it and yet still i find myself in this place that's not quite comfortable because the things that I'm creating in my life now are not matching the culture around me. So this is something that I write about fairly often because I don't think people are getting it. There's one thing, there's, there's only so much work we can do internally. Mm. Part of the work is the culture. And when we're all doing the work, the culture will shift. However, there are things that exist like if I was to work in a hospital as an acupuncturist, I would burn out because the hours are too many, because the, there's not enough autonomy, because I would be given certain standards and insurance 
things to follow that do not feed me at all in any way whatsoever. So I can't work in a hospital. We had mm. a beautiful life in Poland, but Polish soil does not feed me. Polish culture does not feed me. So I mm. burn out just being there because I mm -hmm. do not fit into that rhythm. So mm -hmm. this is something that's come up quite a bit and I feel like it needs to be stressed. Burnout has external and internal causes and you can do all the internal work, but if you're planted in the wrong soil, like, yeah, no, that we, we definitely have a geographic frequency or, 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 or um, geographic calling, you know, and some people are born where they exactly, exactly where they want to be. You know, I ended up in Cape Town and, you know, it's not an easy place to live and it's very, very complicated. And yet I wouldn't trade it for anything. I really, right. because of the access to the oceans, which we have to, um, you know, the mountains, um, the vineyards the smell of the soil, the freshness of the air. I mean, today they, they published an article saying that Europeans lose two years of their life because of air pollution. That's yeah. not an issue in Cape Town. Food tastes like food. Strawberries taste like strawberries. That is so important to me that I've literally put aside my European and my Canadian passport, which is not a little thing. No. It's really... <laughs> you know, and, I, and I've come here and, you know, I think it was Graham Hancock, I stand to be corrected, it could have been him that said on Joe Rogan, this is the first time in two million years that we are now attempting to undo our tribal ways, which is the very thing that makes us an apex predator. Yeah. The fact that we have been tribal and have been able to cooperate and have been able to, to self-sustain and support each other is the only thing that has enabled us to take over the planet as we have. It's not opposable thumbs and it's not gunpowder. It's our tribal cooperative ways. And now it's the first time in two millennia that we're like, well, actually screw that. Let's go bipartisan. Actually learn to love yourself first. You know, do everything on your own first. Don't be a baby. Don't be a victim. Sort yourself out. You know, yeah. And, yeah. and that doesn't work. And it I, I really- to a certain degree but it only can take you so far. I think it's an 80-20 split. I think it has to be 80% tribal and 20% personal. I really, really, really do because that's the only thing. If anything is pulling me out right now, if anything turns the alarm bell off, it's the tribe I've curated for myself. Mm -hmm. The people that I have, my chosen family members, which are my friends, because none of my family is here with me. Um, so these are friends that I have so highly selected and, and ruthlessly, and, and I, that's also written in one of my blog posts on that same uh, platform, that I'm very, very ruthless about who I allow because if anything triggers my amygdala, if anything kind of hinders or contaminates this protective films, um, film I'm trying to recreate around myself, I have to start from zero. So it's, it's kind of like, in, in my mind's eye, I visualize an egg trying to balance either between a fishnet stocking or pantyhose. Mm -hmm. A fishnet stocking, it's like, ooh, it could fall through the, cat, through the cracks, you know, and the alarm bell's always there. And you can't think when the alarm bell's on. Your prefrontal cortex isn't working. You don't see beyond next week. You can't make plans. You don't feel creative. You don't have solutions. All you're doing is responding and panicking. And this is very important because these are conversations we're going to have with all these immigrant children in Europe, in Australia, in the States, and so on. This will happen. Immigration is lovely. I am so blessed to be Canadian. I am so blessed to be Canadian. And it cost me everything. It's not easy. No, no, I did it as an adult and it still was incredibly difficult. Pride fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote unquote fine. And they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home 
with just a couple of drops of blood. Cyfox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. Go to cyfoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount. That's S-I-P-H-O-X health.com forward slash fried. So the need for me to curate my tribe once I arrived in Cape Town was absolutely everything. It was the only thing that could make me feel like, okay, the pantyhose is holding. I got this. They've got me. I can relax. I can sleep on their couch and I'm fine. Not only am I fine, but they love me. Yeah. They wake up in the morning and they're like, hey, love you. You okay? Do you need anything? They literally send me messages for no other reason just to say that they love me. That is what turned the alarm, turns the alarm bell off. And that's what tops up everybody's cup and everybody's saucer. And then it's like when I understand my space and my tribe in terms of what I have to contribute, I have this personal value when it comes to my relationships and it's reciprocity. And it's my number one value, regardless of who I interact with, business, romantic, friendships, family, I am ruthless. And reciprocity to me means when you have, you give. When you need, you ask, mm. period. And my friends are like that. We're very, it, there's a flow that, you know, money is energy, money is water. There's a flow to the stream. It's always moving, you know? So we always have like this meze sharing table, you know, eat as much as you like, cook something. Whatever. It's that kind of analogy that we live our lives through. And when I feel that my friends not only love me and let me stay on their couch, but they want to because they want to serve me because they know I'm going to serve them at my first opportunity, the first nanosecond. And it's just beautiful relation, this reciprocity that comes back and forth. And it's like this pendulum that gains its own momentum. Well, and I think in my life, one of the things that, allowed my brain to feel safe and allowed my amygdala to fire only in normal response to everyday stresses in the way that it is meant to in order to keep things balanced instead of over firing all the time and allowed my prefrontal cortex to regrow and allow my logical brain to make clear decisions is having one particular friendship which I already think that it is such a blessing to have this one person in my life who no matter how shameful I'm feeling or how badly I have messed something up or how awful I think whatever thing that I just did is, I can call her and I can talk about it and I can count on her 1000% to still love me despite my ugly. Yeah. That is more potent and more valuable than we understand and that we realize. And those of us that have it can only take it for granted. The same way we take for granted the fact that a table has four legs. You don't think about it. But if the table has three legs, you know about it. Now, this is something that I do think about fairly often because I find myself in other relationships worrying if I am still loved. So part of my coping mechanisms were similar to yours. I had to grow up very quickly and am am I doing enough? I always need to do more. I need to be the one that protects everybody and keeps everything kosher and sort of, I I need to take care of of all of these things. And I, I hold that role in many of the relationships that I have in my life still to this day. And in some places it's totally okay because there is some reciprocity to it. And in other places, it's not, but in the other places that it's not, I have found my way through dropping the relationships that I feel resentment in, but then I am afraid that in the other ones, the other side feels resentment towards me. Mm -hmm. And those are the places when things like that happen 
And I have a moment where I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what if they're mad at me? What if I upset them? I did something wrong. I, I tried to apologize. Maybe it wasn't clear enough. Maybe we should talk. Should I clear the air? Should I not clear the air? And this internal talk will happen for two or three days at a time. And meanwhile, I remember that table that has four legs. I remember my best friend because I know that if this had happened with her, I would have called first thing in the morning and said, oh, I think I fucked up. Yeah, they're, they're the same barometer. They're like the barometer that reminds us, okay, this is true north. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. did I, and if I need to apologize, I am happy to do that. And please tell me everything that you feel and I will create space for that because you always do that for me and it's totally fine and I'm sorry if I upset you and, and let's figure this out. But there are people that I'm not willing to have that conversation with or I'm willing and I'm afraid that they're not. Mm. Mm. Right? Yeah. And, and that's, that's, you know, so, it, so it's basically back, rooting back to lack of safety, you yeah. know, and if, if, if we take the analogy of, um, I'm sure you've seen it in, in city parks, like the slack line, where you have yeah. like a, yep. you know, and then you walk on the slack line, you know, and it's cool. Like, so, you know, you, you stand on the precipice and you're not particularly safe because obviously you're, you're purposely standing on something that's unstable, which is interesting and, and skill building and fun and all kinds of stuff, but it's exhausting. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort. there's no firm thing that you can just stand and there's a percentage of it that is useful of course of course but it's not sustainable in a long term you get on no. you get off right not where you want to live right and one of the things that this makes me think of is this whole right now there's a huge movement for like get rid of all the toxic people in your life so mm -hmm. which is necessary and also if we want to be choosing people that make us feel safe, then with reciprocity in mind, it becomes part of our responsibility to be a person that creates safe space for other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what we're saying to people is some people are toxic and you should not speak to them. And that's totally acceptable. I get that. A lot of times we are cutting people off mostly because we're afraid to have the conversation that will bring us back to safety. Just, be, like, just because you feel safe with someone doesn't mean that you never feel fear around your relationship. It means that you feel fear and feel okay to talk to them anyway. Right. So resolution or an attempt at resolution isn't going to continue to set everything on fire. It's not right. going to make things worse. Yeah. Right. But you also have to be that person for other people, for this whole system to work. You can't just shut people out and say, well, you were terrible to me yesterday, so you're done. No, of course not. No, of course not. And I, this is where I think that I think uh, trauma education is really, really important. It kind of goes very much hand in hand with uh, burnouts, because even if everything's going well, let's say you're at home and your partner, because this happened in my life, you and your partner just argue on three week cycles every three weeks is like the biggest blowout what is that going to do to your adrenals as well right so you it, like there's a there's a level of burnout that has to do with trauma and if we don't understand what triggers are if we don't understand that so maybe somebody's acting out because they don't feel safe if i see someone acting out and being a complete jerk and being very defensive and almost verbally attacking me i'm learning to say well what's making him feel unsafe like you say yeah. And then I'm not defensive. I'm inquisitive. I get I'm curious. Yes. I'm not necessarily, my boundary is not necessarily going to change. Right. But my communication and my angle and my energy is more of a Jedi, if you will. It, this, yes. has become, this becomes the emotional martial arts of us understanding how to man navigate somebody else's energy without letting them land the punch. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I've written about this before that I don't think the antidote to anger is love. I think the antidote to anger and lack of safety is curiosity. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the very first episode that Fried the Burnout podcast released was on trauma. Huh. Yeah, I have, I have a big opinions. I mean, okay, how's this? How's this for the link between trauma 
and uh, burnouts. I don't know if you've been on Netflix and you've seen Life Overtakes Me. I have not seen that, no. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I saw it and I was like, mm, it might be a little depressing. So I kind of avoided it for two weeks. And then I watched it and it's blown my mind. And it's about Eastern European children that for some reason or another go to Western uh, countries like the Nordic ones, like Sweden, um, and either they have to leave Sweden and go back to their country of origin or they're on the verge of being thrown out. So basically the long and the short of it is, is that their parents have very, very highly stressful life circumstances that are making them having to have to be political refugees. Yeah. And they're waiting for documents or they're waiting for permission to stay or whatever the case is. And, and of course, these stories are very complicated, so they don't tell their kids all the ins and outs of it. But these kids, which are all below the age of eight, and we know that between the ages of you know, four and eight is very, very um, potent in terms of programming and in terms of brain development. These kids pick up on the stress that their parents are going through, and they go so catatonic that they sleep and they don't wake for months to the point where they're being fed through an IV and their parents are doing physio with them. Yeah. It's a brand new syndrome. They're, they're completely, completely, it's like Sleeping Beauty. They are out month after month after month. And there's videos of them being vivacious before the stress started. And some of them have managed, you know, once the whole political, um, situation for that particular family was sorted and they were able to go and live in Sweden without uh, any issue, the child started to come back to life. And they found, and, and they, they said it's very bizarre because it tends to be specifically Eastern Bloc country and specifically Western countries. And th these syndromes are growing more and more and they don't understand. And that's trauma yeah. with a burnout level that we've not yet seen. Yeah. This was one what? of my problems being in, in Eastern Europe for so long. I mean, I spent 12 years in Central and Eastern Europe and you can f feel it in the air. Mm. Or I could feel it in the air. Maybe mm. not everyone can. Mm. Yeah, well, a lot of research says that the Hungarians and Romanians have not yet processed what's happened. How and could they? Well, it's a lot's happened. That's what I mean. And just, well, even in Poland, how can you process that? Well, then here we go into epigenetics. Right, exactly. And yeah, and down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Trauma and so on and so forth. And you yeah. carry stuff that's not even yours that you weren't necessarily there for, but there you are. And right. all this stuff is like holes in well, your... And, and there's so many secrets and so many stories that were never told. So like you said, there's holes in the stories. Like my, my husband is 39 now. His grandmother lived until she was 93. She passed away three or four years ago. Uh, we were still in Prague at the time, and, and she's you know living in Poland. She was from what is now Belarus, but was Polish, and then of course Poland didn't exist for some time, and then was repatriated. So had was forced to move because the border moved, and the city that she had grown up in was no longer Poland. It was now Belarus. So she had to move in order to remain Polish, basically. And she was 93 on her deathbed and asked my mother-in-law to come closer. And my mother-in-law was sort of expecting her to say, you know, take care of your family. I love you. Like, I'm peace out. I'm done. And she stopped and she said, by the way, you're Jewish. Oh. Right? Okay. And so you have, there's, there's a ton of trauma that is in Polish people for a million different reasons. And then you have these holes in the story and these family secrets and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the area that my husband's families, both sides are from, were heavily Jewish for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years. And the intermarriage thing wasn't as big of a deal during certain points of history. So there was a lot of intermarriage and it, it just was not really a thing. Mm until it became a thing, mm -hmm. until we created a thing around it. And so my husband found out at the age of, you know, 35, 36 years old that he's probably like a large percent of his blood is most likely Jewish and hmm. affected by that 
he was affected by the, the, the Jewish trauma. He's affected by the Eastern European trauma. He's affected by the, you know, his father was much older, uh, is much older than his mother by 15 years. So he was born just before the Second World War. So the trauma of all of that. And his father was a landowner. So during communist, his, you know, his, mm. the, his grandfather, my husband's grandfather was a landowner. So during communist times, of course, went to jail and was taken and no one knew where he was for 15 years. And, you know, just these crazy stories that people have, especially yeah, well, on the, in the Eastern Bloc, you know? Well, funny enough, I'm actually getting my, um, I'm having my papers um, revealed from the secret police in Romania as we speak. <gasps> no way. Yeah. So <laughs> how's this first story? How much time do we have? Do as we have much there? time as you need. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, I suppose this is probably the first time I've told it publicly, I suppose. Um, everybody in my life pretty much knows. But um, so my parents are both deaf. They met in a deaf boarding school because Romanians didn't really know what to do with that kind of disability. So they put them all, they lumped them all in boarding school, the one that they had in the whole country. And a bit of an arranged marriage, my, the principal of the school and my maternal grandfather decided to um, set them up. So off they go, they get married. Um, I have two older sisters, they're a year apart. I come about nine years later, a bit of an unplanned pregnancy because obviously sidebar Ceausescu banned abortions right. and that's a whole other historical issue. So I come up in 77. My father decides in 1980 that he wants to escape. So this is the story I was told. He wants to escape and that he gets on the last communist cruise ship out of Romania that travels the Mediterranean Sea. He tells my mother he's going to do this. Um, so she kind of preps herself for it as best she can. He gets off in, um, in Italy and doesn't get back on the boat. There's a huge manhunt for him. After this point, apparently, there were no more um, trips allowed outside of Romania. Uh, my cousin on my mother's side was uh, in the army and was demoted based on the manhunt. Mm -hmm. Of course, the secret police came knocking on our door. My mother played stupid. She's like, I don't know. I'm deaf. I don't know. My husband left me. I don't know. So they eventually leave us alone. He spends a year in Italian immigration camp, meets these other two Romanian guys that only um, met each other on site. One swam the Danube, the other one ran across the border to Hungary. And so these three became like the three musketeers. My father could read lips because it's Romanian, so its communication wasn't too bad. And these two guys would call my sisters to give updates back and forth. And that happened for about six months or so until they got their papers and off they went to Canada. Three months later, my father gets his papers and he ends up in Montreal. Luck of the draw, really. There's no particular reason. He ends up in Montreal. The Canadian government and all their welcoming glory sets him up in an apartment and clothes from the Salvation Army and gets him a job because he's a carpenter. So next thing I know, December 18th, 1982, two years after he'd gone, we land in Montreal. So we got extradition papers to leave, my mother, my two sisters, and I, two years after he left in 1982, seven years before the end of communism. Yeah. So then that becomes, you know, that, that whole um, culture uh, shift changes, the whole integration process starts. Six months later, my father happens to run into these two guys um, on the street in Montreal. Says, wow, you know, what, what random thing to run into you, you must come over. My, mom, my wife will cook you a home-cooked meal. So of course they come over because they're single bachelors and starving and struggling themselves. And less than two years later, again, each of those guys married my sisters and they're <sighs> married to this day. They're married to this day. But here's the kicker. The kicker isn't that. The kicker is the seven of us had the audacity to go back in 1987 for, I think it was a month, maybe six weeks, in 1987 on holiday. So we flew from Montreal to Paris and drove a three Mercedes convoy across Europe and into Romania and into all the farmlands where my, parent, my grandparents live. They didn't even have electricity. I recall 
They're not, they're barely having electricity in 87. They'd only just had a few streetlights. And we're parading around in these Mercedes, which is an important fact because at this point, sugar is still a currency. Pantyhose are a currency. Coffee is yeah. a currency. People are still queuing for six, seven, eight, ten 10 hours at the grocery store at 4 a.m. for the next delivery of lukewarm ham. Or whatever else they decided to bring coming. today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the kid that got two oranges as my Christmas gift. Right. Like that, you know? So how in God's name do we return to Romania when Ceausescu is still in power? <laughs> when not only did my father escape, but those two guys escaped. And we waltz in with all the pomp and circumstance and nobody drives us off the road? Yeah. Like, secret police is not a joke. And to the point that it's not a joke, I've only just discovered that the secret police files have only just begun to be opened in the yeah. last two, three years. Only yeah. now. Yeah. And it's how many years later? 35, 40 years later? Only now are we starting to excavate. And, and now, so I'm at the point which, of course, contributed to my burnout, is that I'm asking my family questions and they don't like the question, so they're not providing me answers. So our relationship is at a standstill at the moment. Yeah, which is really common for uh, people that I know in Poland. This, this is, these are stories that I've heard before. And everybody's like, well, why do you need to know? Just let it go. Move on. Why do you need to know? It's like, well, I need to know. it's in my body. It's my life. Yeah. What is my story? And, and, and my biggest cue, the reason I, I've kept chasing this the, 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 the buzzing in my ear that I could not shake was why my parents had no pride that they escaped. So for them, it was always the biggest deal of, oh, we're deaf, you need to feel sorry for us. Oh, it's easy for you because you're hearing. And I'm like, but, don't, but what did, look at what you achieved. Yeah. You achieved things the hearing people got killed for but you don't have that pride. So either you didn't achieve it or something's wrong. Right. So, and it's, and so the whole conversation around being a child of, of disabled parents and what that does, I mean, you know, they talk about like, you know, caretaker fatigue. I mean, yeah. really, you, you want to be a child looking after your disabled parents when you're an immigrant as well. You want to talk about fatigue, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know? Well, just being an immigrant child, I mean, I grew up in a city in the United States, which is, um, especially when I was growing up, less so now, but still, when I was growing up was largely Portuguese from the Azorean Islands. So most of my friends were their family's translators from a very, very young age right. because their parents yeah. didn't speak English. And that was normal to me growing up. I didn't realize the kind of effect it would have on them long term, but that was, that was normal to me growing up. Yeah. Completely, completely. And then what ends up happening right now is that my gauges are broken. Yeah. My gauges are broken and I don't know when I say I want to do something, if it's a really programmed should or if it's mine. And if it's mine, then I have to push through the resistance of, you know, the, the, the war of art, yeah. you know, Steve Pressfield, the resistance of doing something for myself, by myself. You want like survivor's guilt? Yeah. I mean, talk about having capacity, non-disabled guilt. Yeah. So that's what I have to fight. And that's why my business, my study at mine and, and Cosa Collected, that's why I can't work for anybody else because my soul is telling me I need to get through this. Right. I need to find a way through the resistance and do, just do something for me. Well, that sounds like a good reason to me to get your full story. And, and I'll bring it back to something that you wrote in that same blog post that I mentioned. You, this sentence that really hit me, you said, I wanted to know how much I could let fall away and still feel the steady, unwavering vibration of my soul. If you have been able at this point to drop a ton, but you can't let everything out because you don't know what it is, I can understand how that would be a problem. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's all I can think is like, okay, there's gotta be wins, wisdom is in this, you know, the, the, the wisdom of the soup of the caterpillar. Yeah. Like, like I have let go of so much already. It's like, there's argue, is there anything left? 
Well, and I think that, that that's a large part of your search right now, finding the bits that are left so that you can continue the work that you've done already. And the, the, only, and the only bits that are left that work, that have any substance, that don't fade away, that don't crack, that are sustainable and accessible is a tribe. And it's doing things, whatever that is, that tops up my tank. Yeah. So those two components are really, really the only cures at the cost of everything else. It has to be my environment and, 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 and channeling my energy. You know, what you, what you bring forth will either, kill, will either free you or destroy you. So bringing that forth while being surrounded by a very specific type of tribe that is nurturing and supportive, not, not enabling, not condoning, nurturing and supportive. That's really the only cure and that's really the only hope we have. Yeah. I think that that is a beautiful thing to say. And I would like to wrap up our conversation by reading the end of this blog post that you wrote, because I think that you, by writing this, are putting, speaking into truth, the energy that you would like to give and receive. And the more of this that we all can create together, the better off we will be. So I will finish off today and this really incredible conversation with this quote from you. This level of commitment to the self is what I wish for all those who are suffering. May you find compassion for your pain by keeping your feet to the fire. May this fire burn away everything that no longer serves you. May you know that illness of any kind does not define you. May the darkness be a reminder of the cosmic benevolence your soul is made of. May you stand alone, naked, empty, broke, unwell, and yet more powerful and more loved than you could have ever imagined possible. May you also come to notice that your darkness is the very superpower you have been praying for. In fact, it's the portal that pulls us towards our light. Karina, thank you mm-hmm. so much for your willingness to go into your story today. It is not a simple one to share. And I honor and appreciate the fact that you shared it with us today. Well, thank you. It's, it's quite lovely to, I, did, I never knew that um, someone else would speak my words from that post. So it's actually very sweet and it's, it's very nice. Um, so thank you for doing that. And because it's a podcast, if I may just take two more minutes, because I really want to talk about what these sleep masks mean to me, because they're not just sleep masks. The reason I've chosen uh, indigenous textiles is because there's something so home about, so homely about weaving and, and fabrics. Uh, I've started with South African because, of course, there's 11 official languages here and there's a lot more countries on the continent. But the whole vision is to make sleep masks, which of course, you don't sleep unless you feel safe. (laughs) And if we don't sleep, we are never gonna be healthy because over and above nutrition and exercise, sleep is the top of the pyramid. So that aside, in my mind's eye, wouldn't it be great to be in transit someplace where where these sleep masks are on the, on the table, on the side, and we recognize a fabric from home, whether it's a Scottish tartan or like the current Kosa uh, shwe shwe fabrics that I use, or whether it's Turkish linen or Japanese silk. And we reach out to a stranger and we like, wow, that's really beautiful. That fabric is from my homeland. Or mm-hmm. I recognize that fabric from another homeland. And then you begin this conversation about homelands and you begin this conversation about who you are while you're in transit. And I really feel that on a bigger scale, probably because I am an immigrant and I don't really have a home, that just ties everything in so beautifully in terms of who you are, 
wearing it on you with pride and without worry of cultural appropriation, but with just pride and, and have that as, as a starter, as kindling for a very curious, empathic, interested conversation with someone you would have never spoken to while you're on a destination you might have never been. And you're and, sleeping. And improving sleep in the way. And you guys, you can follow Karina, Karina on um, Instagram at Koza Collected. It's C-O-Z-A Collected. I will put all of the links to how you can reach her, how, he, how you can find her in the show notes. And also... We are gearing up close to Christmas and she has offered us two for one sleep masks for all the listeners of the podcast. So if you place an order by DMing her on Instagram and use the code healing burnout, you will get two for one sleep masks and you can choose the patterns that speak to you and you can share these things with your family and allow them to rest well and allow Karina to continue her work helping the world. And it's free shipping. And it's free shipping, even better. <laughs> even better. Karina, thank you so much again. Because for the being world's here. only getting smaller. So, yes, it's free shipping. Right? <laughs> thank you so much for being here. It was so great to talk to you. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. And what an episode it was. I am sure, because of my own history and because I have spent so many years abroad, I am sure that this episode will hit quite a few people in the gut. And if you feel like this story needs to be heard by your friends and family to allow them to create their own healing journey, to give them the, the jolt of energy that they need to get started digging through their own crap, then please do send it to them and share it with them and let us know how we're doing. Thanks so much and I'll talk to you next time. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more Got each other on our side Plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast With Kate Donovan